few of you have noticed that I title my sermons now. <laughs> and today, I think it's important that you understand my intended inflection. Chosen for what? Or something to that extent. As in, I've been chosen for what now? You want me to do what? This might have been heard from across the parking lot one day last fall as a member of the elder nominating committee approached an unsuspecting victim, I mean, uh, individual. <laughs> this is going to be the first part in a two-week series. Next week, I'll talk more about the dynamic of being chosen itself, of the chosenness of God's people, of Jesus calling and choosing us as his disciples. But today, I want to talk more about what we're chosen for, that what. Today is what you soon-to-be-ordained and installed elders have been chosen for, as well as what we, the whole people of God, have been chosen for. Today is about ministry in all its forms. So my sermon this morning is as much a charge to our new elders as it is a charge to all of us here. We are all called to ministry. By whatever means, through whatever circumstances, God has brought each one of us to this time and to this place to hear the good news of the gospel and to become ministers of that good news in all the world using whatever gifts we have been given by the Spirit. So in charging all of you, all of us, I want to begin by turning to the baptism of Jesus as a model for our ministry together. According to Matthew, when Jesus approached John the Baptist in those Jordan waters, John said something to the effect of today's sermon title. You want me to do what? John's instinct here is the first lesson about ministry. When Jesus approaches us, inviting us to be part of what he is doing, our attitude should be like John's. It's not an attitude of apprehension, of running for the hills, of not me, pick somebody else, even though that may be our first reaction when we hear we need volunteers. What John shows us is an attitude of humility and service to Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, but, but you come to me? I need to be part of what you're about, not the other way around, he is saying. It's a recognition that this whole thing is about Jesus, not John. Our ministry as a church is not about us as the church. It's not about being First Presbyterian Church of Jefferson City. It's not about being a church with a 150-year history, or even, dare I say, about being decent and in order. It's about being people who want to be about Jesus, who want to follow him, who want to be about what he's about. I want to share with you something I say during new elder training. If I'm saying this to our new elders, I think it's probably fair to say it to y'all as well. The elders you have elected, our session as a whole, they are not here to represent your will as the people. This is not a democracy. You are not their constituents. 
You did not elect them to support a platform. You elected them to follow Jesus. You elected them to discern his will for us as a congregation, to guide us as a community of disciples seeking the way of Jesus. Our system is not about democracy. It's about discipleship. So that's the first lesson about ministry here. We need to be baptized by Jesus. We need to accept his direction. And insofar as we become messengers and ministers of his gospel in the world, we need to remind ourselves and each other that this ministry is about him, not us. Don't elevate the messenger over the message. That being said, the next thing Jesus says to John is, no, I need you to baptize me. This is going to get us to the second lesson about ministry. What is this about? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Well, what is John's baptism about? According to Matthew, John is the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. He's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And people are confessing their sins as they receive baptism. So it's a baptism that's for the repentance of sin in preparation for the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom as it comes here. Why does Jesus need this baptism? Does he need to repent and turn away from sin? Does he need to prepare for God's kingdom? Does he need to turn away from sin and turn toward God's kingdom? Yes, he does. The very next story in Matthew's gospel It's about how Jesus was led up from his baptism by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness where he faced temptation. The scriptures do not tell us that Jesus had sins he needed to confess and be forgiven for, but the scriptures are clear that Jesus had to face sin and decide to turn away from it. His baptism, just like ours, is an act of commitment to turning away from sin and turning toward God's kingdom. That is all that repentance means. It's it's about turning. It's a turning. And in this sense, Jesus steps into those baptismal waters, the same waters we step into, and he repents with us and for us, turning with us away from sin and toward the kingdom way of God's righteousness. And this is exactly what he tells John. He needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. This is the second lesson about ministry. What are you chosen for? As elders, we as a community of faith, righteousness. We are chosen to be committed to the cause of righteousness, to living in the ways of God's kingdom in this world. What is the righteousness we're committing to with Jesus? Next month, we'll have more time to dig into what Jesus teaches about the righteousness of God's kingdom. We're going to spend three weeks in the Sermon on the Mount during the month of February, and we already have some idea about where this is going as we've talked so much about Matthew 25. That is the final teaching Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew's gospel, and he he draws our attention to the solidarity with the least of these as the ultimate expression of living with him in righteousness in his kingdom. For today, though, we need to recognize that in this story, the baptism of Jesus, the first step of righteousness is not the difficult teachings. 
about reconciliation, about love for enemies, about turning the other cheek. It's not terrifying scenes of divine judgment either. The righteousness Jesus shows us here is not an unattainably high standard of personal perfection. The first step of righteousness is the willingness Jesus shows of taking that first step into the water, of committing, of putting himself out there, ready to say, here I am. I accept this calling. I commit. This is what I want to be about. In our world today, that seems to have no end of teaching us how to be cynical, the idea of committing to the cause of righteousness might sound hopelessly naive. The idea of committing to anything at all, for that matter, can often seem a sign of being innocent, gullible, and totally uncool. We might imagine the cool kids in Jesus' day sitting back under the trees, far up away from the banks of the Jordan River, looking down at Jesus. Oh, you, you poor thing. You're, you're going to try? You think you can make a difference in this world? We're introduced to that dynamic somewhere in a middle school cafeteria, but it transcends age. You can find it just as easily in boardrooms, break rooms, and fellowship halls. Ministry is a vulnerable thing. Ministry means putting yourself out there. You can't do it from the comfort of that dry riverbank. You really have to get in there, down in the water. And until you step into those baptismal waters of ministry, you don't know what it will be like. The water might be cold. Stepping in might mean getting in way over your head. I'll get an amen. It might mean stepping into the mud and into the murk, into places that are unclear, Stepping into the unknown, where you don't know where you're headed. Ministry is such a vulnerable thing. Whether it's preaching, teaching Sunday school, preparing meals, playing music and singing, walking up to a visitor and welcoming them, voicing an idea in a committee, volunteering for a committee, serving on session. Whatever gift the Spirit has given us that we bring to build up this church family and serve others, these acts of ministry require us to be vulnerable and put ourselves out there. They require us to take ourselves seriously. And I don't mean always being serious, but to acknowledge that, yes, we really do have something to offer. See, here's the thing. If you believe that, if we believe that about ourselves, then we choose to put ourselves out there with this thing that we think we have to offer, we're taking a serious risk. Because what if, what if it doesn't work out? What if people don't like it? What if we fail? I want to define this term vulnerable a little bit. I've been learning a lot from researcher Brene Brown I think I've mentioned her before, and I've been listening to her book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. 
She begins the book with the source of that wonderful phrase, daring greatly, which is her way of talking about the courage to put yourself out there. It comes from a Teddy Roosevelt speech from 1910 called Citizenship in a Republic, often called the Man in the Arena speech. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, the rough rider, is not the person you would expect to be talking about vulnerability. Problematic historical figure in some ways, too. We can talk about all that, fine. But listen to this. Because what Brene Brown does with this quote sheds so much light on what it takes to be vulnerable in any arena of life, but I think in particular to be a part of a church family and to be involved in ministry. So listen to this. Here it goes. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly. A part of what Brene Brown does with this concept of daring greatly is to try to help us shift our sense of self-worth from what we do to who we are. When our self-worth is tied to what we do, we are less likely to take the risk of being vulnerable because when we put ourselves out there, our sense of worth is at stake. Something doesn't go well if we fail, if people don't like our ideas, the food we make, the songs we sing, how we lead, then that translates into a verdict on our self-worth. And why would anyone risk putting that on the line? The result is keeping ourselves from taking any risks. We put on armor. We disconnect. We distance ourselves. We might keep ourselves from getting deeply hurt, but we also keep ourselves away from connection and from being part of anything meaningful. But if we can develop a sense of self-worth tied to who we are and not what we do, then taking the risk of trying something, putting ourselves out there, being vulnerable, doesn't translate into an evaluation of self-worth. It's just trying something. It's still going to be hard but it's free of the looming judgment and paralyzing fear of unworthiness if we fail. When our self-worth isn't on the line, Brene Brown writes, we are far more willing to be courageous and risk sharing our raw talents and gifts because regardless of the outcome, you've already dared greatly. Church family, soon to be ordained and installed elders, this is all that is asked of you. Not to achieve greatly, but to dare greatly. Not to succeed, but to put yourself out there for Jesus. To dare discipleship. Your worth as leaders, as a congregation, is not tied to what you do, but to who you are as beloved children of God. That's what makes you worthy. And this is the final lesson I'd like to draw from the baptism of Jesus, about our ministry together. When he puts himself out there and steps into those waters, totally vulnerable as they wash over him, 
The heavens were opened to him, and the Spirit of God descended upon him, and a voice claimed him. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. He hadn't done anything yet. There was nothing he could do to earn the love or approval of that heavenly voice. The voice from heaven pronounced him worthy not because of anything he had done, but because of who he was and is. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Your calling as elders, our calling in ministry as a church, comes straight out of this scene in that moment the heavens were torn apart. This is the foundation of the righteousness we are called and chosen for, to reveal God's unconditional love and absolute delight in us and with this world through the Holy Spirit. To step into those waters with Jesus, not because we feel like we've got it all figured out, not because we feel like super disciples, not because we think we're better at it than anyone else, but because we are loved, because the Spirit is upon us. The one who steps into the waters with us is here for the vulnerable, the people who are works in progress, those who know their brokenness, who know they are broken, and who press on anyway. As we heard in the words of Isaiah, this chosen one, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He is gentle with the broken. That's the way of his righteousness. To stand with us exactly as we are and where we are, and right there to set us free from the prisons we make for ourselves. I am the Lord, the prophet says. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So, fellow ministers of the gospel, all of us here, the spirit who once came to rest upon the vulnerable body of Jesus is the same spirit who comes to rest upon us today. We are enough because Jesus is enough, because the Spirit of God is enough, because God's love for us is enough. So let's dare greatly. Let's dare to be disciples. Dare to step into the waters of ministry. And we will not be alone out there. We will be standing with a great multitude of the vulnerable, who stand in solidarity together with Jesus, with the Spirit alighting upon us all, pouring out upon us the unconditional love of God our Father in heaven. We, yes, we, have been called to put ourselves out there with whatever gifts and experiences we have been given to dare greatly for righteousness as beloved disciples of Jesus. Amen.